Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. The problem with modern days unipolarity is precisely that. The West is leading Ukraine down the primrose path. We don't have enough tanks, we don't have enough vessels, we don't have enough planes. To bring chip productions here to the US. This is multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up this week, a shock survey from the top science journal Nature has upended the university rankings table we've lived with all our lives. Goodbye MIT, so long Imperial. Hello Sun Yat-sen University and Tsinghua. So is this the decade when Western students end up at Chinese colleges? Germany has sent 18 Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine, yet the country's defense minister says he has no plans to increase his annual budget. So are they heavily insured? Was Germany's big talk on rearmament simply a case of evasive maneuvers, or is its passivism simply pathological? It's Iranian nuclear deal season. The Saudi foreign minister is in Tehran for the first time in 17 years. And the US is once again playing plutonium pinball with the old enemy. We examine the balance of power in a changing Middle East. But first... Ranking Nanjing. To say China, Morning Post had a story last week. The title was Chinese universities ranked ahead of Oxbridge, Caltech in quality research output by Nature Index. It was immediately striking. Unusually, the headline actually kind of undersold the story. I think probably a more appropriate headline would have been in the top 10 universities ranked by Nature's uh, high quality research output ranking index. Seven of them are Chinese. The index itself is constructed by Nature, probably the leading scientific journal in the world. It's a very straightforward metric and, and very hard to kind of hack in a way. It just takes the top four to five percent of hard science and uh, health journals and it just counts. If the author is in there and his university affiliation is then counted and then whoever generates the most amount of papers in a top journal. So this is a very non-subjective index. It's as close to an objective index, I think, as you're going to get. Seven of the top 10 universities are Chinese. Um, some of them I'd heard of. Uh, Nanjing University is number four. Peking University is number five. But some, you know, I'd never heard of. Like uh, number 10 was Sun Yat-sen University. Number two was uh, University of Science and Technology of China. The only three Western universities that made it into the list were Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, Stanford University, and Harvard. The only thing that you could say positive for the West here is that Harvard made the number one spot. But MIT, MIT ranked behind universities that I'd never heard of. And MIT is supposedly one of the most advanced scientific research universities in the world. So just to give some slightly more context on that from a British perspective, Oxford and Cambridge only made it to the 16th and 19th spots. So Sun Yat-sen University, who I'll bet most of our listeners have never heard of, I have never heard of it, ranked at number 10 above Oxford and Cambridge. 
One more thing to note, which I thought was really fascinating, was that the Say China Morning Press article compared the Nature Index ranking, that is for high quality research output, with the QS universities rankings. These are the kind of general global universities rankings. And the two things just did not add up at all. Just to give some context here, so rank number four on the high quality research output ranking was Nanjing University. Nanjing University ranks 133rd on the QS universities ranking system. Now compare that to MIT. MIT ranked number nine on the high quality output ranking, and it ranked number one on the QS universities ranking system. So not only does this suggest that the Chinese university system, in terms of high quality research output, is just blowing the Western system out of the water, it also suggests that no one understands this because the QS university ranking system is completely broken. There's absolutely no way that a, that a university that ranks 133rd is capable of producing you know, the fourth most high quality research output in the world. That, that, that measure is broken. There is absolutely no doubt about that. Likewise, there is no way that MIT should be ranked number one if it's number nine on this high quality research output list. Because to me, it seems like the most objective way to measure this is through high quality research output. I'm, I'm not really sure why you really would measure it any other way. I mean, we can discuss that a little bit more. But so, so there's a bunch of stuff to take away from this. Um, I suppose we'll probably go on to talk about the, the broader ramifications, but I think that should give listeners some sense of what we're dealing with here. This, to me, is extremely interesting, but it's not surprising at all. I've noticed in the last few years there's been a, a, a stream uh, of such stories, essentially, uh, pointing out that the Chinese, in terms of their education system, is is gaining the sort of lead that years down the road will help their economy uh, hugely in relative terms to uh, the Western world. Uh, some examples of those, for instance, in 2020, uh, China awarded 1.4 million engineering bachelor's degrees. <laughs> Okay, so in 2021, 1.4 million engineering bachelor's degrees in that year alone. And that compares with uh, a little under 200,000 in the United States. Okay, or essentially a seventh. Like in 2020, the US awarded a seventh of the number of engineering uh, degrees as China. Now, in recent years, the Chinese have also been increasing uh, the amount of uh, PhD level education that they're doing. And I saw research last year that showed that um, by 2025, the Chinese are likely to produce more than 77,000 STEM, uh, which is uh, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, STEM PhD graduates per year, compared with only 40,000 within the US. So again, PhDs were always an area that the US excelled in, but now you know, within a couple of years, the Chinese are expected to be almost double the US number in overall terms. And we're also seeing other things as well within US universities. For instance, in 2017, uh, the US university system gained about 4,300 uh, published scientific research uh, academics. Okay. A couple of years ago, though, so in just five years, that trend had reversed. China had gained 2,408 
published science research academics. So you can see in terms of, you know, the the, the number of uh, bachelor degrees that China's offering, you know, seven times more bachelor uh, degree graduates in uh, engineering than the US. Now in terms of even PhD level engineering or STEM degrees, China is soon going to be double the US. Uh, in terms of published researchers in science, China is now gaining those kind of academics, whereas in the past it was losing them. I mean, all of these kind of metrics suggest that uh, the sort of results that you've outlined that you know, it might be fascinating to think, hang on, how did this happen? Well, we've seen for years how it's happening, essentially. And this, I think, is is interesting because it's a kind of, it's one of those data points that confirms a trend that helps you say, yes, this is truly a trend and it is truly having an effect. Because we've seen a lot of these data points, as I've said, and you know, people should be aware of this. One of the things I think that might be worth discussing is a kind of a, I think maybe you might call it a narrative or even a narrative mythology that's been going around for a number of years now. Um, I think this kind of helps clarify to what extent this mythology is true. I refer, of course, to the idea that the Chinese are effectively sending their students to the West and then kind of like stealing uh, our secrets in a way. And the kind of underlying assumption of that narrative is that the Chinese can't really create anything themselves, which is kind of racist. <laughs> I've been skeptical of that for a while, but I think this really solidifies this. I read quite a lot of economic econometric studies, which are pretty similar to scientific studies. I mean, the methodologies tend to be very similar and so on. And to come up with a really good study and then get it published in a top journal is hard. You don't only need technical skills, but you you need you need to be able to be original enough. And a lot of the time, stuff has been done before. It's quite difficult to be original. I mean, a lot of people would only kind of get, you know, one or two papers published in one of these journals, maybe in their lifetime. It takes a lot of originality. So if if the Chinese are getting published in these top journals, uh, we can definitely, at the very least, say that if they were stealing the secrets in the past, they're not anymore. They, they clearly have people who are capable of generating original research and apparently generating more original research than we are. I guess the, the broader discussion about that is, what does it really mean to steal the secrets, in a sense? I mean, it's very understandable if there was some sort of corporate espionage going on where you place people in a firm to figure out what the firm's doing and copy their patented technology or something like that. But it's a lot less clear to me what 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 stealing uh, of ideas means in the scientific sphere. I mean, science is open. It's kind of an open discipline. You can read whatever you want. And you can try and have a go at your own studies if you're technically capable of it, if you want. Um, most people publish their data, so you can like use that. And it's all there. It's all, it's all open. So what does it really mean? I mean, to me, sending, knowing that there's something interesting scientifically going on in a certain part of the world, and then going there to learn about it, 
it's not really stealing. That's kind of just learning. I mean, you know, in the Middle Ages, Paris was the center of learning. If you wanted to learn, you know, about the science of the day or about theology or philosophy, you'd travel to Paris and you'd learn there. And then you'd take that knowledge with you back to where you came from. And that's always been the case. So I think it kind of, it definitely clarifies that if there was, if, if we did consider Chinese coming to the West and learning things and then taking it back to China as some sort of stealing, which it's not really clear to me that's what that is. But even if we consider it that, they don't need to steal anymore. They're clearly perfectly capable of producing this research on their own. But it also raises, of course, was this ever stealing to begin with? I think, I think it's increasingly becoming clear that we're looking at the rise of China or the China problem or whatever you want to call it in a very narrow way, in a very kind of um, jealous way, in a sense. Like all the kind of microchip bands and all that have this kind of embedded notion that like we produce the best stuff, no one else can do it. And if we just don't let you have it, you're not going to be able to you know, achieve anything. But everything is showing that that's just not true. Once a society becomes sufficiently technologically advanced, they can create scientific marvels like we can. And frankly, we should know this anyway, because the Soviet Union did it. The Soviet Union had a very dysfunctional economy, but it had incredible scientists. It had really top-notch scientists, and out of those top-notch scientists, and, and engineers for that matter, came wonders of technology. They've put the first man in space, not the West. You know, um, Many of their weapon systems were extremely impressive. Um, okay, their economy was a mess, but that was due to a poor political and economic organization. So I think we should kind of... We should have a little bit more humility in this sphere than we do. Um, I think I'm saying that to myself as well to try and get it into my own head. But this rankings thing just blows a lot of myths out of the water. I think I think we've definitely passed a point now. I actually think that this should have been put to bed quite a long time ago. I mean, the the Chinese um, overtook uh, China overtook the U.S. Um, in terms of. Um, uh, patent applications. So, you know, when you have a new idea, you kind of apply to patent it so that nobody else can copy it. And China actually overtook the US for patent applications in 2011, more than a decade ago. Okay. And for the last recorded numbers, which were in uh, 2020, uh, the Chinese um, applied for almost 1.5 million patents, which is about 44% of the total around the world. Now, in terms of patents granted, it's taken a little bit longer, um, but the Chinese overtook the US for patents granted in 2015, um, so about eight years ago now. And in the last recorded year, they had granted about 530,000 patents, so over half a million. Uh, and the U.S. Uh, a little over a third of a million. So that, and 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 the trend between the two is is kind of separating. So it's it's not going to be long before the Chinese are, are, are granted almost twice the number of patents in the U.S. And in terms of the the, the granted payment uh, patents per technology, the Chinese are either ahead of or appear uh, kind of equal to the U.S. in the fields of biotechnology semiconductors, computer technology, 
uh, telecommunications where they're way ahead. It'll surprise no multipolarity listener to realize. Um, and electro- electrical machinery, apparatus, and energy. So these kind of like five or six key areas of the 21st century economy, the Chinese are either level pegging with the US or way ahead in terms of patents granted. And, you know, we're talking about a decade really of uh, since the Chinese overtook the US in patents uh, applied for and granted. So I, I don't think it should come as a surprise to anybody. It, and, and, and this ties into, a, you know, when you listen to people or so-called experts talk about the Chinese economy, it feels that they're kind of like 20 years out of date, that all of their advances are won by industrial espionage, that it's really a kind of a low-wage economy pumping out you know, like cheap goods for Walmart and Amazon and, you know, British pound shops and that sort of thing. Um, and that really it's an economy that isn't high, but that, you know, that's not true at all anymore. It, it's, it's got a highly effective education system. It's producing a large number of STEM graduates. It's, it, I mean, seven times more than the US. It's, it's producing almost double the number of PhD graduate engineering and STEM graduates than the US. It's ahead of the US in a whole range of kind of bleeding edge technologies that look set to dominate the uh, 21st century. It's even getting more scientists flowing into its university system. I think people really ought to update their views on the Chinese economy. They are moving up the supply chain. And, and the way I see this, Philip, the quality of Chinese universities, the number of published scientists that they have working in them, the number of patents they're applying for, the number of STEM graduates and and science graduates and PhDs that they're producing every year. What these are is their leading indicators. So they're indicators of economic outperformance in the future. It's going to take a while before the people who graduate from these universities uh, filter into the economy and then matriculate up to the to the higher ends. It, this is going to take time, but education is, a, is one of the prime long-term leading indicators of the success of an economy. It seems clear to me increasingly that the Chinese are just winning this battle. They're just winning. Let's say something about quality, because there's another statistic here that highlights, I think, just that issue. If we look at the percentage of people aged 25 to 34 that have a third level education, in China, it's about 27%. If we look at that number in the United Kingdom, it's 49 and in the United States, 46. So China are doing more with less. Less of their population are going to university than we're seeing in the West, but they're producing all the things that we've talked about, whether it be on the ranking systems, the patents, anything else. They're producing more with less graduates, at least per capita. So, I mean, what do you say about this? I, I guess it kind of gets to the point that, you know, People have been discussing it for a few years now. The university systems in the West have gone downhill a great deal. It's 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 not really much of a secret. I was quite cruel on Twitter, and I said that you know a good portion of the university was a nonsense factory. A lot of people who were clearly very invested in the university, um, and I knew that because their bylines had stuff like a uh, post-feminist in it. A, a lot of these people got, got very upset with me, but um, I think this kind of this kind of speaks to the issue here that the Western universities are tilting toward things that 
whether they're useful or not, I guess is debatable, or whether they're interesting or not, maybe debatable, but they're not very useful. It's funny, I think there's kind of an irony here. We'd usually associate it with a communist country to look at quantity over quality, and the you know democratic capitalist countries to look at quality over quantity. But no, it's China that's looking at quantity over quality or quality over quantity. We're looking at quantity. We still have this bizarre mindset that if we just send everyone to university and it doesn't matter what degree they get, you know, the old joke is, you know, if they get an underwater basket weaving degree or a feminist dance theory degree, that, you know, that's somehow progressing our society. But actually, it's sucking up resources in our society. It's uh, putting a debt on the back of young people. A lot of these people aren't getting jobs with these, frankly, kind of pointless degrees. And at the same time, like, even if you could make the case that, well, look, it is a bit of a waste of money at a micro level, because if you go and you get one of these degrees, it's a waste. But at least it's building these amazing big universities that are producing serious stuff. Well, they are producing serious stuff, sure. There is still good research going on in the West, but there's more of it going on in China. So um, it's clear that the, the problem here isn't a quantitative problem. It's a, it's, a, it's a problem of quality. The Western university systems are measurably losing quality. Well, I don't want to get too much into the whole culture war stuff, but you do read you know, articles in the press about, you know, Californian or Washington State or Oregon uh, schools looking to change the mathematics curriculum because they view it as discriminatory, right? Like decolonized maths is a big thing. You had the University of Leicester recently as well um, got rid of its theoretical mathematics uh, faculty. Leicester is a city in the Midlands of the United Kingdom. It's got a decent-sized university. Just chopped its theoretical mathematics university. They still have, you know, a gender studies faculty, of course, and, and and very heavily invest in the social sciences. But as I say, I, I mean, my big takeaway from all of this is it's interesting of itself, it's important of itself. But what's really important about all of these data points, whether it be the quality of universities, the number of graduates, the number of patents, all of these things are leading indicators and it goes back to our special episode about peter zahan who is perhaps the most prominent figure in the public sphere who takes a very bearish outlook on chinese prospects or the prospects of china and its economy for various reasons listeners can can go back a couple of episodes and 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 listen to that again if they want but my point is that if you look at the leading indicators within china there's a great many that point to a continuation or even an acceleration of their trend, their, their, their journey up the manufacturing value chain. So where, you know, 20 years ago, there really were a low-wage economy where, you know, they would pump out a lot of very cheap stuff and they would gain market share based on margin because their workforce was cheap, essentially. These days, they're much higher up the value chain. You, you know, you see them producing things like, Electric cars that outmatch Tesla. You, you know, you see uh, Huawei start to dominate the mobile phone market and dominate in in, in cutting edge telecommunications like five G. And um, all of these things look set to continue because they're only getting better at doing science research. They're only getting better at producing STEM graduates. They're only getting better at patent, patenting new ideas for 
taking this research and taking the knowledge of their uh, STEM graduates and making it real for the uh, manufacturing sector. So I think that's what's important to read into this. Bundeswehr back down. German government has finally unveiled its national security strategy, which I believe is the first time that it's done that since the Cold War. Now, I think we should give a little bit of background of, uh, on this. As people know, after the Cold War ended and Germany reunified, it really focused its foreign policy on soft power, on diplomacy. It was it was very anti-war. It did not get involved, for instance, in the... Um, the Iraq war in 2003. It's been very reluctant to send its soldiers and troops abroad. You know, this is, of, of course, a, a result of the of the horrors of, you know, Nazi Germany and then the Second World War and the Holocaust and a certain degree of, you know, national shame and reflection on that. However, uh, things have changed. So I think the first thing to change is the Americans have for I mean, at least since the Obama administration, perhaps before that, in fact, have been putting increasing pressure on the Europeans to start stepping up to defend themselves. All NATO member countries, and Germany is a prominent member of NATO, have pledged to spend at least 2% of their total GDP on their military budget, on defense spending. And Germany has consistently failed and failed by a long way to hit 2% of GDP. And the incoming Schultz government, the coalition that involved the the Social Democratic Party in Germany, the Greens and the and the Liberals, it, it was a key pledge when they entered government to uh, hit that 2% of GDP minimum. And of course, in the aftermath of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the Chancellor of Germany, Schultz, stood up and made a big speech where he made a huge and grandiose commitment to massively increase the defence budget. We also had countries like the UK, like France, and many others talk about, right now is the time that we need to increase our defence budget. And it really became received wisdom that the result of the Ukraine war would essentially be a remilitarization, a rearmament of Europe. Now, not to do a victory lap here, uh, Philip Pilkington, but I think both you and I said that it was probably unlikely that this would happen because Europe was looking economically ropey. And if you want to spend more money on defense, you, you need to generate you know, more revenue as a government. And it's very difficult to do that when you enter recession, when GDP is shrinking. It's very difficult to increase military spending in absolute terms and low here we are, Philip Pilkington. It now turns out, now that the Germans have unveiled their national security strategy, that it's somewhat less ambitious, shall we say, shall we be gentle, than the promises that uh, Chancellor Schultz made a year ago. For instance, they promise now to reach the 2% minimum only as an average over multiple years. Okay. Now, also Boris Pistorius, the uh, defense minister in Germany, had asked for an extra 10 billion euros, uh, which is you know fairly modest when you consider the volume of aid going to Ukraine, for example. But uh, he asked for an extra 10 billion euros to make a decent start at rebuilding the German military. But instead, all he got was word that his budget would not be cut in 
absolute terms, which means ultimately it's going to be eroded by inflation. So it seems that the Germans aren't moving ahead at all. I mean, this is a country, if you remember, that was so short on weaponry, so short on weaponry, that for a NATO exercise, the soldiers had to be sent with broom handles instead of assault rifles to, 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 to kind of mimic the assault rifles. That was when uh, Ursula von der Leyen was German defense minister. She's since failed up to be president of the European Commission, of course. And in addition to that, uh, a, a little bit, uh, you know, a month or so ago, British senior officers also admitted in testimony to a parliamentary committee that it would take a decade for Britain just to get back to the armaments level that it was before it started donating them to Ukraine. And that armaments level, by all accounts, was already far too low. So ultimately, I think what we're getting here, Philip, is it's clear this big European rearmament is not happening, certainly not anytime soon. I think it's worth exploring a few more aspects of the specifically Russian angle, or the specifically German angle on this, I should say, there were a few assumptions uh, underlying that the rearmament would take place. Some of them were economic, and as you said, the energy crisis and so on has largely prevented that. I'll, I'll bring up some statistics on that in a moment. I think the more immediate thing to focus on is to ask you know, if you read the New York Times article on this uh, inability to pass a serious military budget, there looked like there was a lot of infighting. There were a few representative, I'd say probably kind of hardline Atlanticist or very, very pro-NATO types who really, really wanted to get this done. But when they tried to do it, they, they found that there was just no collective will there. Now, I think it's pretty obvious why this is, because although the war in Ukraine is very shocking, very shocking for Europeans, and will probably change Europe forever, that doesn't mean that it'll just immediately change everything that your politician, that your uh, that the public and that their politicians think. Germans are still kind of pacifist, really. I mean, uh, the last poll that I saw was out in February of this year and it indicates very very strong desire on the part of the german public to end the war this forza poll uh, revealed that 80 percent of german people believe that it is more important to end the war with negotiations than for ukraine to win so only 18 percent of people said it's more important for ukraine to win than for negotiations to take place and the current arming of ukraine is, is being done on the premise that Ukraine will use the armaments to win. What these polls show is that, as you've described it, Germany's been this very anti-war country. It remains a very anti-war country. Obviously, the German public have a lot more skeptical view of Russia than they did prior to the war, and that will probably be there for a while. But that doesn't mean that they, they, they want to get on board with this militarization and stuff. So... Germany really isn't in a place where it can do this. Actually, it's not just down to the energy, although that is a huge component. It's also down to the, um, to the borrowing that Germany's been engaged in since the pandemic. So Germany is a famously fiscally upright country, and the German people are very, very proud of this. But since the pandemic, the German government has been running uh, government deficits, budget deficits. That, now, in, in countries like Britain or America, 
or even many European countries, having a government deficit, a budget deficit is the norm. It is not in Germany. And, and a lot of German politics revolves around each side accusing the other of mismanaging the budget. Huge component of German politics. And in fact, this component of German politics largely explains why the euro crisis in uh, 2011 to 2015, or whenever you want to say that it ends, why that played out. Because the Germans were projecting this budget balancing tendency that they engaged in on the rest of Europe. Well, since the pandemic, they've run quite big government deficits. So in the pandemic year 2020, they ran uh, minus 3.4 or 4.3% of GDP, which was very big for Germany. Now that started to come down um, in 2021 and 2022, but the war has changed that. Uh, the German Germany expects a deficit again of 4.3% of GDP in 2023. So what the war has done is it's blown the deficit back out to where it was during the pandemic. And that's not a good look in Germany. Now, whether that it causes economic problems or anything, no, not really, not really. But it's a huge, huge problem politically. So you have these two forces at work. It's it's the energy is driving a lot of this. Yes, it is is it is probably making it, you know, much more expensive for the German manufacturing industry to produce weapons and so on. And if the energy crisis gets worse, that becomes worse too. But you've also got the fact that it's just probably not popular and that it's expensive at a time when Germany already has a large budget deficit. I think similar problems are going to happen all across Europe. The, at the end of the day, it's extremely difficult to increase uh, military spending in absolute terms because sometimes we talk about 2% of GDP as, a, as like this is what's important. But really, it's the absolute terms that are important because if your GDP suddenly contracts by 20%, then that's a 20% reduction in, in, in military spending. You know, what's really important is the actual you know, volume that you spend. And it's extremely difficult to increase the amount of money going towards the armed forces in any country when your GDP is stagnant or, or contracting, because that means essentially something else has to suffer. And even in less pacifistic countries or less pacifist countries, countries like Britain, for example, loves a war in Britain. We love a good war in Britain, very much unlike the, the average German, I would suggest. But even in countries like that, it, it's a really hard sell to say like, look, we sent uh, almost all of our 155-millimeter artillery tubes and shells. We sent a whole bunch of tanks and armored vehicles. So I'm sorry, but you know the NHS is going to have to cut its budget. Your grandmother isn't going to get a cancer treatment that she thought she was going to have. Or uh, we're sorry that you know we're going to have to increase class, class sizes at schools, for example. We can't afford to hire those extra teachers now. This is a really difficult sell. So for any meaningful increase in military budgets, you were going to have to have a, a, a GDP that was expanding. And lo and behold, I, th I think a, for a good, a, a good part, because of the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia and the, and, and the increased costs that that's imposed and the economic dislocations, uh, GDPs are, you know, across Europe are stagnant. I think what's really interesting about this is the geopolitical implications. In an ideal world, 
the United States would like Europe to be able to take care of Europe. It would like Europe to be able to be confident that it would easily be able to defend Europe against any possible threat so that the U.S. could swing everything that it had toward China. And presidents since Obama, who first came up with a pivot to Asia, and certainly Donald Trump, who said things in, um, how shall we say, more forthright terms, U.S. presidents have wanted to do that. But in effect, what the Ukraine conflict has done is Joe Biden, the U.S. president, has pivoted toward Europe. He's increased U.S. involvement in Europe. He's increased U.S. commitments to Europe. There are going to be more U.S. soldiers on the ground. There's going to be more materiel committed to Europe. And he's spent a lot of materiel sending it to Ukraine, which is, as you say, in the process of being destroyed at the moment. The problem is, it seems fairly clear to me, that the Europeans are going to be in no fit state to defend themselves anytime soon. There, if the US is running low on armaments that it can send to Ukraine in, in, in terms of military aid, the Europeans are essentially out of stuff that they can send. There's very little more that they can send. They could buy stuff from third countries and send that, but from their own stuff, they've got nothing to send. And they're simply not going to in the next year or two, as far as I can see, increase their uh, military spending to compensate for that, to even get back to the levels that were inadequate as far as everybody involved was concerned before this crisis. So I think geopolitically it puts the United States in a pretty uh, difficult position as well, really. Saudi's man in Iran. One of multipolarity's ongoing themes has been the rapidly transforming geopolitical and economic situation in the Middle East. And most of our coverage is centered on the detente between Saudi Arabia and Iran, who for many years now, perhaps two decades, have been uh, really at each other's throats uh, within the region. And in fact, both of them engaged in more than one proxy war against the other. It's been that bad. However, as listeners to multipolarity will know, but readers of the Washington Post and quite often the Guardian will not know, is that those two countries are, are, are really going through a process of detente at the moment. Relations are thawing at a phenomenal rate. The most recent two interesting data points on this is that the foreign minister of Saudi Arabia has visited Tehran to speak to his opposite number, the foreign minister of Iran. And it is the first such visit for 17 years. That, that, that That's how long diplomatic relations had been frozen. And I think given that the Saudi uh, consular services and embassies are reopening in Iran at the moment, this is the kind of the, the final, uh, the cherry on the cake, if you like, in terms of... Um, you know, relations between Saudi Arabia and uh, Iran restarting. And it really shows how much progress is being made. What I found very interesting about this is it came at the same week that information had leaked to the New York Times that the Americans have been quietly trying to reopen uh, negotiations on the Iran uh, nuclear agreement. Now, for a bit of background information on that, during the Obama administration, uh, the US and Iran 
agreed a, 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 an agreement essentially whereby Iran would pledge not to move closer toward gaining nuclear weapons, mainly by pledging to not enrich uranium. And the U.S. in return would kind of loosen off on sanctions and 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 bring a, Iranian oil back into the market and uh, a range of other quid pro quo agreements. Trump, however, and, and the Republican Party in America in, in general thought that that was an awful deal. It was a nightmare that Iran was cheating. So one of the first things that Trump did is he repudiated that agreement, slapped the sanctions back on, and in return, the Iranians started enriching uranium again. It was, of course, one of uh, Joe Biden's prime commitments when he was running to be president that he would renegotiate this deal and, and, and get it back and up and running. Of course, the European powers were absolutely against the Trump decision to pull out of the Iran nuclear agreement. Uh, they even explored ways by which they could uh, take it on, and, and, and that even involved uh, them looking into an alternative to the to the swift interbanking system because the way that the US imposes sanctions on Iran is through their kind of a python grip on the international financial system and the Europeans even looked at a way around that so keen were they to uh, keep that nuclear agreement but since Biden's come in, he's been able to make no progress whatsoever on that nuclear agreement. They failed completely to do that. And in the intervening time, as we've discussed, the Iranians have uh, reached a, a detente with the Saudi Arabians, uh, the Saudis and the uh, Syrians. Turkey, Iran and Saudi Arabia and Syria are now talking about normalizing multilateral relations between them and, 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 and Moscow is trying to broker this. So things have really changed rapidly. The US position now in the Middle East is far weaker and it seems that what they're trying to do is they're trying to come up with some kind of uh not quite a full agreement but a kind of understanding basically and the details that the new york times have is that iran would agree not to enrich uranium beyond 60 percent of course 90 percent is what's needed for uh, weapons grade uranium and in agreement, the U.S. would agree not to seize Iranian oil tankers. They would agree not to impose further sanctions, but they wouldn't agree to relinquish sanctions. And it might also involve unfreezing certain Iranian assets. For instance, just recently, the Americans agreed to allow Iraq to pay Iran $2.8 billion worth of energy debt, and the Iranians apparently have their eyes on about $7 billion worth of energy debt that they're owed from South Korea. So this is the general outline of the deal we're talking about. But as I say, things have moved on. Iran is, is, is working increasingly with China, with Saudi Arabia, with Russia, with India, of course. They're working on uh, new payment systems, new logistic systems. Uh, the Iranian economy is now suddenly open uh, through the Russian route as well. So the US position has really weakened. And of course, now we're looking at something that is nowhere near as comprehensive as the previous deal. And I, and I guess it shows essentially the direction of travel within the Middle East. The elephant in the room here is, of course, Israel. Israel was also very opposed to the nuclear deal. Effectively, the Israelis saw it as one step for the, the Iranians getting a nuclear weapon, which probably isn't unreasonable, frankly. And Israel are very scared by that. Um, I mean, you have to kind of have some 
a lot of sympathy for Israel. They're in a pretty bad neighborhood. Um, countries like Iran have expressed a desire in the past, you know, to to, to you know Israel shouldn't exist as a country, which is kind of a kind of a not great thing to have on your border. Um, Israel's also, uh, of course, actually experienced wars, the Yom Kippur War. Uh, in 1973, I want to say, which the Israelis won handily against the Egyptians and a few other powers. But, you know, it's still very, it's a very tense kind of situation. I think, um, I think Israel have, uh, they don't really want to go back to that place where they were in the 60s and 70s of having to think about fighting wars. And if Iran obviously had a nuclear weapon, that would, that would massively uh, decrease the amount of things that uh, that that Israel can do in the region to protect its security. So I think it's really interesting to kind of think through, you know, I'm, I'm not going to give a clear answer here because it's, it's actually one of those points in foreign relations right now, which seems to me very much so up in the air. Prior to the current machinations with Saudi Arabia and Iran and so on, the Saudis and the Israelis were getting were getting very close, and and I think that the basic idea there was to was to counterbalance Iran, which is an enormous country, really, uh, with Israel and Saudi kind of being, if not allies, some sort of like um, you know working partners or something like that. I I don't think I haven't seen any evidence that the Saudi and the Israeli relationship has gone downhill in any way. There haven't been those tensions that you've seen with America. But I think you can infer from their outreach to Iran that that is going to massively complicate the relationship between Israel and Saudi Arabia. So I, I don't really know what else to kind of say about that whole thing. Israel's a real pivotal country. It's a real pivotal turning point in the Middle East, um, in a sense, in the world. All of their strategy that they've been pursuing for the past you know, two decades or however long you want to say it has really been rocked. By these, um, by these new developments in the Middle East. And it's not really clear to me what they can do about it. It's actually very hard. Usually, I think on the show, we try and kind of imagine what the logical step is to take, you know, and often that is taken because the world kind of just sometimes kind of shakes out that way. But with Israel, I don't know. I don't really know what they are supposed to do with this current situation. So it's a really interesting problem, but I'd say it's a problem that we're going to be hearing about more of in the next few years as Israel tries to work out a viable strategy for this situation. We are fresh from a huge victory.